0: want us to say together as we think about family again today, belonging to the family of God, and particularly as we think about this parable and what it means to us, I think, that's how we can reflect on this today and maybe uh, to get some new thoughts, some new insights and that sense of family. So I'd love us to say this together. Here we go. We believe in God the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We believe in God the Son, who lives in our hearts through faith and fills us with his love. We believe in God the Holy Spirit, who strengthens us with power from on high. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that as we come before you and as we think about this parable, you would reveal to us more of who you are, your nature, your character, and more of who we are, that we are loved by you. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, in this series, we've been looking at the goodness of God and now we're in these few weeks when we're looking about being the family of God. And the reason that I feel that these are both so important is because what we believe impacts the way that we live. What we believe changes our behavior. And our perception of who we are in God's sight changes the way that we live, the way that we pray, the way that we engage with God on a daily basis. And I want us to think this morning about God the Father. What is your perception of God as a Father? Just take a moment to think. What is is the perception that you have when we talk about God as a Father? And therefore, what is the perception that we have when we think of ourselves as being children of God? Last week, J.D. was speaking about uh, how we have the right to become children of God. But why would we want to become children of God if our perception of God as a father is not a good one? Do you get what I'm coming from? So what is our perception of God as the Father? So, JD again was speaking last week about not only do we have the right to become children of God, but it's children who are born not of natural descent nor of a husband's decision and will. So, it's about our decision. It's about coming to God, the one who loves us, and becoming his children to those who believed he gave the right to become children of God. And then it goes on to talk about it's not from the law, but from grace in that passage that J.D. was speaking from last week. It's not about keeping rules, it's all about relationship. And in fact, the end of that passage in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus or John says about Jesus that he and the Father were one, and you sort of pick up from that the sense that Jesus wants us to experience the same relationship that he has with the Father. And so in John 17, actually, you see, when Jesus is praying, he says, Father, just as you and I are one, I pray that those who come after me, who believe in you, will be one as we are one. And so I think it's great that we have an understanding of who the Father is. And so what is the Father like? And I want us to think about this parable, which in some ways I think is wrongly named. Is it about the prodigal son? Maybe it's about the prodigal sons, because I think there are two prodigals in this story. But actually, I think this is much more about who the father is and the welcoming father. You see, and so many of us, I believe, have a distorted view of what fatherhood is like because of our own fathers. We have a distorted view because we place on God, we project on God, something of the relationship that we had maybe with our parents, our father. Years ago, when we were living in Ely, uh, we were leading a youth group and one of our young women from that group was about to leave. So we thought we'd do the right thing and invite her for a sort of farewell supper. And I love cooking, and there's a particular dish that I love cooking that's with chicken and prawns with their shells on. And um, it's lovely, especially if you can get those really big, juicy prawns. So I asked her before cooking, we said, do you like prawns? And she said, oh, yes. And so she arrives for dinner, and I serve up... Uh, this dish with these prawns and the shell on with their legs and you know uh, tentacles or whatever they are and uh, she looked at it and went ooh <laughs> so I said I thought you said you like prawns she said yeah I did I said would you like me to take the shells off and um, I- I'm one of those strange guys that if I take the head off a prawn I suck it because it's so delicious and um, so I-, I-, I took the shells off for her so that she could just see the prawns and she still looked at them sort of slightly disapprovingly and with a bit of ooh so i said well, you did say you like prawns she said well i like prawn cocktail crisps <laughs> see her perception of what she was going to get to eat was based on something that was not accurate and true but completely distorted probably with no prawn in it at all So what's our view of the Father? What's our perception of who God is? I suppose I'm one of the people that's very fortunate in that I had an amazing dad in so many ways. He wasn't perfect by any stretch, but he was amazing. I was telling somebody here the other day that I remember I had to go to church three times on a Sunday... And I can remember going, especially in the evening, and sitting on Dad's lap, and he would open his jacket, and I would snuggle in, and I hope you're not offended by this, but I can still remember very strongly that aroma of his armpit. (laughs) That there's something about that smell. It wasn't unpleasant, but it was a safe place. And right up until dad died, sometimes you just catch that same smell that just reminded me of that safe place. But I'm very aware, of course, that that's not everybody's experience of fatherhood. And we live so often in a fatherless generation, a generation that's not used to having a father present. And so what does the father look like to a fatherless generation. And I think Jesus told this parable so that we would get a picture of what the Father is like. It's in that creedal statement that we said together that we believe in God the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does that mean? I think that's, in a sense, trying to say a little bit of what I've just been trying to say, which is that we take our model of fatherhood from our fathers, when what we should be saying is looking at the father and applying his model to us, especially us who are fathers. And that's where we should be getting our picture of what fatherhood truly looks like. And we have an extravagant and a loving father. So Paul writing to the Ephesians, if you've got your Bibles open, you might like to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, praise be in verse 3, praise be to God, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It goes on to say that he predestined us to be adopted. As his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance to his pleasure and goodwill, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the Christ, the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And in the epistle, to John, John says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be children of God. And I think this is the picture that we see in this parable that Jesus tells. You know the story. We've heard it so beautifully read. The son says to the father, I think we sometimes lose the impact of what the son said in the phraseology that we read our Bibles in. Daddy, please can I have some money now? Actually, it's Dad, I wish you were dead and I want my inheritance now. I want to deprive you of everything that you've got so that I can have it and go off and I can do sex, drugs and rock and roll. And he tells his father, I wish you were dead and I want what's coming to me and I want it now. And he leaves his father. He realizes that while he's got money, he's got friends. But as soon as money runs out, he realizes that actually money is worth nothing. And that real relationships is the key to happiness and a joy-filled life. But he realises that he's right royally messed up. And he decides, while he's sitting with these pigs and would wish to eat their food, he decides that he's going to go back to the father. And he has this speech that's worked out in his head, doesn't he? I'm going to go back to my father... And I'm going to say, Father, I've done wrong. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And so he goes back to his father. And as he meets his father, the father says, What the heck are you doing here? Who on earth do you think you are? You're smelly, you're filthy. You've taken all my money, you've left me. I don't want anything else to do with you, clear off. The father doesn't even say, well, I'll welcome you back, but please go and have a bath first. What I love about this story is it demonstrates what the father is truly like. See the father is watching. He's watching and waiting. He's on the lookout. And the thing I love that as soon as he sees his son making a step a step towards him what does the father do? <laughs> he runs to meet him. He runs to meet him. I don't think we get at all just how inappropriate it was for the father to gather up his robes and run to meet his son. It would be a bit like us running naked in London to go and meet our returning son or daughter. But it's not just the running. And we'll come on to that in a minute. But the Father is looking out for him. He's constantly looking out. He's longing for him to return. His heart is aching for his missing child. In this passage of Luke, there are two other things about missing things. Luke uh, Luke 15 kicks off with, The lost sheep. See, and I think here in this parable, what we need to take all three, actually, parables together. The lost sheep is about a sheep that's, oh, this is a nice piece of grass. I'll just eat this piece. Oh, there's a nicer piece of grass. I'll just eat that. Oh, look, there's an even nicer piece of grass. Oh, look, there's a lovely piece over here. Oh, look, that's really delicious. Where am I? Where is everybody else? And so I think in the parable of the lost sheep, what you see is this sheep being tempted and drawn away, not intentionally, but getting lost. And what happens? (laughs) The parable says that the shepherd leaves the safe 99 and goes searching for the lost one. So maybe today you feel like you've wandered away from God where he comes searching then there's a lost coin Uh, a lost coin has great difficulty in getting lost by itself it can't make a decision to get lost it can't wander away and get distracted it has been misplaced by somebody yet what happens (laughs) And this part's really interesting, I think. In this parable, who comes searching for the coin that's lost? It's a woman. Do you know what that was saying to that culture that Jesus was speaking into? (laughs) God is represented in that as a woman, searching the house and finding the lost kind. And here in this parable, we have the picture of the one who deliberately turns his back on God and walks away. If you've wandered off, if somebody has taken you out of communion with God and it's not your fault, or if you have wandered off, you get searched for. You get looked out for. You get found. And so what happens as the father sees the son? He goes running to him. And it's not just this running to him. Let me read for you from a commentary. If a Jewish boy in the first century Palestine wastes his family inheritance amongst the Gentiles and there's dare to, then dares to return home to the village, uh, there's a, sorry, and dares to return home, the village performs what is called a kezarza, it's a ceremony, and in this ceremony, the village breaks a large pot in front of the boy, symbolically portraying and officially proclaiming the separation between the boy, the village, and his family. The father in Palestinian culture is expected to sit in the house, emotionally withdrawn, and wait to hear what the son has to say for himself. A patriarch would never run. Doing so would be highly undignified and contemptible. But in this parable, the father breaks the rules to get to the son before the pot is smashed and he's excluded forever. And what does he do when he gets to the son? The son starts to say, Father, I have sinned against you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off and says, quick, bring a robe, bring a ring and bring shoes. If you're in Scotland, there's a particular material that gets used in all sorts of different shades and Checks. Tartan. And what was tartan for? It identifies the clan to which you belong. And again, in this time in Palestine, the robe would identify the family to whom you belong to. And the father, as the son comes back, is placing a robe on him that says, you belong to this family. We are clothed in the robes of righteousness that identifies us as belonging to the family. And then he says, bring a ring. The ring was used to transact business. It was a symbol that was often used as an imprint It was the symbol that if you were going to transact business on behalf of the family, you needed the family identification ring to conduct the business. And the father says to the son, not only do you belong to me, but you have authority to conduct business on my behalf. The business that I gave up to give you your inheritance, you now have permission to be involved in that again, and I trust you with it. And then he says, bring shoes for his feet. Servants didn't wear shoes. The father is saying, I'm not making you one of my servants. You're my son. And so he welcomes him back with the family identity, with the ring of authority, the shoes of dignity. And then he says... (laughs) Let's have a party. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Because you're my son that was lost and is found. You were dead, but now you're alive. But then there's the older brother, isn't there? Who's out in the field. And what's the older brother doing? He's working diligently. He's obeying the rules. He's doing everything by the book. Yet actually his relationship with the father is just as distant as the son who went away. And when the son comes home, what does he say? <laughs> who the heck do you think this is coming back and wanting to be part of the family here? I'm not joining in the party. And he says to that son, Everything I have is yours for you to enjoy at any time you want. And I think that's often such a big challenge to those of us who have been in church life for years. Do we get upset when new people come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we see new people coming into church and sitting in our seats? Do we rejoice? when there are people who don't fit what our model of church looks like and they bring something different? Or do we celebrate with them that actually these are children who are lost but now are found? Is our relationship with God so tied up in obedience and faith? Obedience, not faith, but obedience and obeying the law, the rules, that we miss out on the party? We have a welcoming Father with open arms. He wants to embrace us, encourage us, to love us, to lavish his love upon us. He wants to welcome us with open arms. Today, as he is standing with his arms open wide, looking out for you, will you make a step towards him? Because as you do, he will come running to me.